and we're continuing our study of Luke's gospel. Before we turn to Luke 23, verses 33 to 43, which is our sermon text, I'd like you first to turn to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, the 52nd chapter, beginning at verse 13. Isaiah 52, 13. We'll read straight on through the 53rd chapter. Here's what God says. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high, lifted up, and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. 
putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And now we turn to the Gospel of Luke, the 23rd chapter, beginning at verse 33. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed are suffering justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these words are holy, and they are as medicine to our souls. As painful as they are, we recognize our great need because of our sin, because of the darkness of our understanding. And so, as we consider this passage, lead us by your Spirit, illumine our minds and our hearts, that we may worship you all our days. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. <clears throat> In our many 
road trips together over the years past, Mary Lou has sometimes pondered right out loud why it is that a land that is so filled with churches, one standing on every street corner in some towns or like ours hidden away in hotel conference rooms, why it is that such a well-churched country as ours should be in the social and economic and legal and financial chaos it routinely is? It's a very good question, but it assumes certain things about the preaching and hearing of God's word within those many churches and the practical outworkings that preached word is meant to produce. We might very reasonably assume that the more churches of the Lord Jesus Christ there are, the more righteous, the more thriving, and generally the more squared away will be the land in which those churches live and operate. That's what we might expect. But of course, not every assumption we make about churches actually turns out to be valid. Even the reasonable assumptions. And so we have to ask, does every church standing on every street corner in all those cities, towns, and villages, do they all actually preach the whole counsel of God? And the answer, of course, is, well, no. They don't. Not all of them. And in the case of those churches that do, is every hearer in the pews actually tuned in to the sermon with the laser focus of a lion poised to pounce on its prey? And again, the answer is, well, no, not really. So many people in the pews are distracted by so many other things. Their bodies are there, but their minds are somewhere else. And then there's that final hurdle to be cleared. Of those hearers who are actually keenly tuned in at the moment of good, solid biblical preaching, will their short-term memory of the rich biblical banquet they're taking in and the practical resolutions they're making, will that short-term memory actually last them until they reach the church parking lot? Sadly, the move from forgetful hearer to effectual doer is a journey too strenuous, a leap too far, even for many well-intentioned people to make. We simply forget what it is we heard. With the result that many churchgoers actually come home with not much more than the dim memory of a Bible story or two. Stories of things that happened long, long ago, way back when, way back in the days of Abraham or Moses or David or the Lord Jesus Christ. Things that are understood to be nice stories, good stories, but essentially irrelevant for those of us who are trying to make a living here in San Antonio in the 21st century. That was then. This is now. 
Beloved, today's Bible passage drives home for us once again the present-day relevance of these gospel narratives. Have our cultural circumstances changed over the 20 centuries since Calvary? Of course they have. Here in Texas, we're not crucifying our criminals. We're not divvying up their personal effects to the executioners. Today, we've got other issues of justice and cruelty and the treatment of people that we need to address. We've got issues that would have seemed as strange, as foreign to our biblical forefathers, as crucifixion and the casting of lots for clothing seems to us. But despite all those cultural differences between here and there, now and then, the underlying natural bent of humanity, ever since Adam, that underlying human character is fundamentally unchanged down through the centuries. Adam's sin messed up our DNA. So a sinner is still a sinner, is still a sinner, no matter the onward march of the centuries. Just a few dark, lurid passages from the Bible will serve to make the point. I want you to think of Lot and his two daughters, hiding there alone in the cave of Zoar, having just witnessed with their own eyes what appeared to them to be the end of the world, right outside the mouth of the cave they were in. From all that these two girls of marriageable age could tell, there's only one man left alive in all the world. And he happens to be their dad. Or think of Judah, the lonely old widower, Judah, seeking some illicit consolation and comfort from a younger woman who happens to turn out to be his own daughter-in-law, Tamar, a woman obviously with issues of her own. Or think even of King David enjoying a spring evening out on the palace deck while his armies are out campaigning in the field. That unguarded moment, that one unguarded moment, led David to some big trouble, didn't it? Long-lasting trouble. Those are some Bible stories, but aren't we all too familiar with situations today at least as explosively destructive as these? And aren't families today being turned at least equally inside out by sin, marriages broken, families overthrown, children endangered? My point is this. Apart from the powerful operation of God's special grace on the human heart, human nature simply doesn't have the capacity as we move on down through the ages, to change. 
we can't change on our own. We don't naturally change course. As a human race, we don't spontaneously improve. Despite what the progressives may say, we're not progressing, we're regressing. The sins of the fathers are still visited on the sons and the grandsons, at least in this respect, that apart from God's special intervention by grace, those old sins of the fathers keep recurring. Generation after generation after generation. Because by nature, we're all dead in sin. By nature, we're all following the same downward course that leads to the grave and immediately beyond it, to hell. These two criminals certainly were. They're slipping and sliding down that road. But so certainly are we, unless God by grace intervenes. So how do these three crosses raised up together on Calvary 2,000 years ago, how do they show us this great spiritual need we all have and God's gracious provision to intervene and meet that need? Let me suggest to you that what we have here in this passage is essentially a case study of two lost sinners. In verse 32, Luke calls them evildoers. Our translation calls them criminals. But in Greek, what it really means is evildoers. They're both very bad men. Very bad men. These men have been duly tried under Roman law. They've been found guilty and justly condemned to death for their crimes. One of them, in verse 41, you notice, one of them says as much to the other. We're guilty. Here, as we die on these crosses, we're only getting what we deserve. You and I both know that. But numbered with them on that day was the perfectly innocent Lord Jesus Christ. And of all four gospel writers, only Luke gives us this little insight into the intervention of God's grace in the fading life of one of these two very bad men. I have four points of comparison to make this morning in order to show you the relevance to you of this incident at Calvary, the place of the skull. They may be painful points to hear. I'll warn you in advance. They may be painful to hear. They're certainly not very flattering. But like the pain of lancing a boil or the pain of setting a bone, Taking these comparisons to heart may be the beginning of a proud sinner's healing and restoration. My first point of comparison is simply this. These two criminals 
are sinners. And just like them, so are you. You're a sinner too. Let's take a good hard look at this. And I say a hard look, I should say, at ourselves. A hard look at ourselves. Because, dear ones, there is no favoritism with God. It's very easy, isn't it, for sinners like ourselves to hold vital biblical truth at arm's length. It's very easy to consider the deadly infection of sin as if we're just observers of it. We're standing there in white lab coats, observing it. But we're not. The truth is that, no, you and I are right there in the Petri dish, in the laboratory, in the Petri dish, with these two men. When we read in Scripture of sinners and their just punishment, we're reading about ourselves. Ourselves. And we'll read these biblical accounts either to our spiritual profit or to our greater condemnation. Beloved friends, let's remember God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the humble very properly numbers himself among the transgressors, among the spiritually impoverished, the spiritually needy, among the criminals. So how needy are we? How lost are we by natural birth? Far worse than many people seem to think. Because, as the Bible clearly teaches, the children of Adam, by nature, are sinners even before we've had a chance to sin. Think about that. We're not sinners because we sin, We sin because, by nature, we're sinners. It's our inborn, fallen human nature to sin, and no different in that respect from these two characters on the cross. To be sinners is our natural condition from conception onward. David, in the 51st Psalm, laments it not as an excuse for his bad behavior, but as a plain fact. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. So just as sheep beget more sheep and horses beget more horses, so sinners beget only more sinners. Your parents were sinners. You're a sinner. Your children will be sinners. Just like these two criminals hanging on their crosses, we're all sinners. So we've got a problem. My second point of comparison is this. These two criminals were both condemned to die. And just like them, You, the sinner, face the practical certainty 
of your death, your own death. So the news gets worse. We're all sinners, and sinners die. We have to. And if you doubt me, aren't some of us already beginning to feel the onset of it? Haven't you yourself experienced the occasional failure of your health? The older you get, the, you may begin to see the strange phenomenon of sickness actually becoming more of a trend than a novelty. Arthritic joints begin to remind you of the fact. Your failing eyesight, your failing hearing, the loss of all those former joys of youth and vitality, when you begin to experience these things, I urge you, to think of them more as I'm starting to think of them. These are gentle reminders from God that these three score and ten years that some sinners have the privilege of living here on earth, they're winding down. They're coming to an end. But even if it's not the loss of health, haven't you already sampled a foretaste of death in the failure of relationships? The betrayal of confidence, for instance, in a trusted friend. That's a kind of death. The breaking of solemn promises and commitments, the devastation of divorce. The hardening of children's hearts against their parents or parents against their children. Each one of these and a thousand more is a dim foreshadowing of death in another dimension of the sinner's experience. So apart from the intervention of grace, just exactly like these two criminals, you're a sinner. And being a sinner, you are, as I am, condemned to die. Not just them, you. But let me tighten this comparison up a little more with this third point. That just like these two criminals, the time you have left to you is very short. Looking back on it, we know that by now uh, the lives of these two men were measured in hours, just a couple hours. I want to ask you, in what terms do you measure yours, your life? If you've recently celebrated a birthday, and some of you I know have, one of you is celebrating a birthday today, actually then you know with absolute certainty how many years are behind you. You know that. You know how old you are. The question here is, how many years stretch out ahead of you? And that's a secret we simply don't know. It is quite possible that years, to speak of years, is to use the wrong yardstick. 
Pick any disaster, natural or man-made. An accident. An aggressive cancer. A heart attack. A brain aneurysm. Our plans for what we'll do tomorrow. Our plans even for lunch today go right out the window. Because man proposes, but God disposes. The Holy Spirit, by the pen of Moses, gives us this food for thought in the 90th Psalm. It's a prayer. Not a prayer of complaint, but one that simply declares the sober truth. Moses writes, you, like a flood, swept men away. Till in the sleep of death they lay. They are like grass that sprouts anew, with blades of green in morning dew. At morn it sprouts to grow and rise. When evening comes, it fades and dies. Sinners just by nature, sooner or later, wear out and run down. We all do. And David certainly knew the uncertainties of daily living when he prayed in the 139th Psalm. You on my unborn self did gaze while in your book were set my days. Days all inscribed and formed as done, although as yet there was not one. How precious, God, your thoughts for me. How vast in their totality. Their sum exceeds the grains of sand. I wake and still I'm in your hand. God has sovereignly appointed the number of our days. He knows them precisely. He knows the time and the circumstances of your death and mine. But you and I don't. When sinners like us awaken each and every morning, shouldn't we give thanks for yet another day of grace to live? It's really a marvel when you think of it that sinners live through the night to awaken at all. And we simply don't know how many more such nights and days there may be for us. So whatever time we have, let's spend it well. Let's spend it wisely. Ecclesiastes pointedly reminds us of our duty as dying sinners that we are. Solomon writes, whatever your hand finds to do, verily do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Now, by now you have noticed that everything I've been telling you today has been very bad news. This has all been very bad, very dark. You're a sinner. As a sinner, you're condemned to die. And your time to do anything about it, if that were even possible, your time may be very short.
That's precisely the situation of these two criminals hanging outside Jerusalem on their crosses that morning in early April, long ago. But there's one more point of similarity I need to make. It's an absolutely critical similarity between their case and yours. Just exactly like those two dying criminals, you today have before you, for this one fleeting moment, the good news of a king who's ready and willing and able to deliver you through these present sufferings and on into paradise. There he is in the Gospels. Both of these transgressors, between whom our Lord Jesus Christ suffered, they shared equally in all these dreadful circumstances I've just outlined for you, but they also shared this, that suffering there along with them is the Lord Jesus Christ, the unblemished Lamb of God, who being reviled, reviled not in return. Who, while suffering the unspeakable torments of crucifixion and mockery from everyone, prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Those words of the Lord Jesus fell on the ears of both these men both blasphemers. But here's where the paths of these two men diverge. One of them heard these words from the lips of the Lord Jesus, witnessed that incredible self-restraint of Jesus as between them, between the two of them, he suffered the same torments of the cross. This first of those two died in endless torment. And I mean endless torment. Tormented in life, tormented in his crimes, tormented in his apprehension, in his trial, in his shame, and in his public execution. He saw Jesus, he heard Jesus, then he died and death brought no end to his torment. The other of them had changed his tune somewhere along the way. Just an hour ago, he had been blaspheming too, along with his mate. The two of them had been blaspheming. He'd been hurling abuse at Jesus and anyone else that he happened to see. No different until the differences between this gentle man between them, the differences between him and me became apparent to him. They began to dawn on him and he began to think This man 
has done nothing wrong. This man is suffering along with me, dying along with me. And he's done nothing wrong. And his mind was changed. And his heart was opened. And the very last moments of his fast-fading life were changed. And he began saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I don't know when it'll happen. I don't know how it'll happen. Right at this moment of dying desperation, it certainly looks impossible, looks out of the question that you will ever reign as king at all. But when that day comes, remember me. And so there was a parting of the two men's ways. Wasn't there? Two men of equal guilt and equal privilege. One of them died in endless torment. To the other, Jesus the dying Christ and King of the Jews made his final promise. Amen, he said. That's the word. Amen. I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And on the strength of that promise, this man, the dying criminal, was delivered safely across that deep darkness that was right there before him. It's transferred across it, escorted across it into the bright kingdom of heaven to be with Jesus. Dear friends, biblical Christianity has many faces, different faces, different aspects to it. In our natural interest in and pursuit of those brighter, happier aspects, I encourage you, never forget that at the foundation of the Christian life, at the foundation is the bearing of a shameful cross along with Jesus. He was numbered with the transgressors as he bore the sin of many. So let us, like him, also bear, each one of us, our appointed cross. Let us take up our cross and follow him, though it be for no other discernible reason than the sheer joy of being counted with him. Counted with him. Numbered among the faithful saints and confessors and martyrs of old, who in their time took up their crosses and followed him. Let us here look for nothing better than he himself endured. 
Here we find labor and hardship. Here we find the things that we find in life and death. We find the difficulties. We find the grace. We find the glory. Here is trouble. There is rest. Here is a cross. There is a crown. So this is the Christian life. This is the Christian life. It's to be with Christ in life and death, in labor and hardship, in grace and glory. It's to be with Jesus Christ. And mark this well. The grave has no power to interrupt it. No power to interrupt the Christian life. The Apostle Paul put the matter far better than I ever could when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, our hearts melt when we consider the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. The eternal love that you had for your Son from all eternity, you now have for us so that though our bodies waste away and the outer man decays, yet the inner man is renewed day by day. We thank you for the life that is ours in Jesus. And we pray that we would take it to heart and that we, with this light shining within us, would shine outward, that the gospel, which has taken root in our heart, will bear fruit upward that many, many people will be called out of darkness into light, out of death and dying into life and its living in Christ Jesus. We pray this for our friends and for our family, for those we love close at hand. We also pray for the nations because you teach us to pray for the nations to preach this gospel to them and we pray that nations might be drawn to the light of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ we pray in his name Amen